This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. We may think we spring from the womb whole, a unique individual, independently created. And while that is true, we are in fact a human being irrevocably linked to those who came before us and those who will join us, namely our family. Just think about how many of our conversations revolve around our parents, our children, our grandparents, whether present or missing. My friend Lisa and I, who talk almost every day, often end our conversations with, okay, today you win, your family is crazier. But in Julia Samuel's new book, Every Family Has a Story, we learn through our conversations with eight different families that both the extraordinary and most ordinary of lives hold hidden stories that if they remain unexplored, become a form of armor armor that we think protects us. Over the last five years, I've been privileged to interview over 300 authors. A few conversations remain swirling in my brain, actually having rearranged my brain. Julia Samuel is one of those authors. We had a conversation when her first book, GriefWorks, came out in 2018. She brings a compassion and clarity to her work as a psychotherapist and best-selling author that is palpable. This is probably why her podcast remains one of our most downloaded episodes. In this latest book, Julia again helps us navigate how we live and how by confronting that armor, we can find wholeness and connection. It is my distinct honor to welcome back Julia Samuel. Oh, Roxanne, what a beautiful introduction. How lovely to be with you and to be in the ears of your listeners. I am very (laughs) excited. It it is fun because, you know, one of the things that we learn is because all the podcasts are available, a lot of our what I would call backlist get downloaded all the time, you know, thousands of downloads happen a week that are not the new episode, that are in addition. And yours is the most downloaded. I had no idea. I am so pleased to hear that. That's amazing. (laughs) It's so so fun. Yeah, it's fun. (laughs) In some ways, podcasts have longer lives than a lot of the content that, that we create, don't they? I mean, books get lost and mm. kind of buried in the back of rooms. But I I think podcasts somehow have longer lives. It's quite interesting. I mean, obviously not the books, it, you know, the sort of classical books in libraries and things that live for hundreds of years, but it's quite interesting how, how long a life they have anyway. Yeah. And I do think what happens is like when I think about our podcast, because we do nonfiction, that it might be that something comes back to be pertinent. You know, a topic that we covered some time ago, but I think topics like psychotherapy or grief remain perennial, right? I mean, I think about that with your new podcast, which we'll talk about that, you know, every day you could be wanting to hear something again because you're in a different place, right? Yeah, life has changed. That is the absolute certainty. And what we're kind of sure of one day, something can happen or we can read something or have a kind of sudden kind of moment of clarity. And what we were sure of is then completely different. Yeah. So, Julia, one of the questions that came to my mind that was inevitable, your previous books look at therapy through the lens of an individual. And your new book looks at therapy as a multi-generational family unit. And it made me wonder, do you now believe we need to understand our family before we understand ourselves? 
I think it's a bit chicken and egg. I mean, the the reason I wrote the book is that I do think we have spent too much time focusing on the individual and on aspects like parenting. And we haven't accounted for the incredible influence of our family, both our parents, our grandparents, generations that whose stories we don't know, and that were influenced by our siblings. And, you know, it's an iterative process. We have a blueprint of our, you know, genetic predisposition to character traits, athleticism, intelligence. And then that is iterative with our environment, whether it's blunted or is allowed to flourish. And so Mm -hmm. it's people influence us and shape us. And I think we have got a bit too kind of black and white about it. it's me in relation to me. I think it. I think we're much more a we than a me. Mm. And when you well, well, let me let me come to this as the next question before I ask you about the families. You say in the book that most of what is talked about is of no consequence, and much uh, that matters is left unsaid. So what what becomes the obstacle for us, either in like when I talk to my friend Lisa or when I'm talking to a sibling or when I used to talk to my parents? I, I feel like I know you, although we've only met once before, but I don't think this relates to you because I think you talk about what matters and significant things that are occurring in your life. But I was brought up and I think many of us were brought up in a family where all of the things that were kind of very difficult to navigate or understand, which were the emotional processes to do. My parents had traumatic, enormous losses before they even got married. But, you know, my mother was an alcoholic. There was there was a lot of stuff that was never talked about. And we talked about the minutiae of, you know, where we were going to go for a walk that afternoon and not about the fact that, something terrible and just happened. We just pretended it didn't happen. And I think I think that my message is that the defences that we use with the hope that they're going to protect us, like if I don't look at it, it isn't going to hurt me, are actually the armour that keep us locked in ourselves and don't allow us to come to terms with the difficult things that we face and we get kind of locked in amber with the difficulty in us if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that do, that that definitely does make sense. And I think that as I watched the conversations that you had with any one of the eight families, the hurdle would be getting a family to agree to do that. How did you manage to find eight families that were willing to be that vulnerable and exposed both to each other and to you. And then in print. And then in print. (laughs) I mean, obviously they're disguised, but still. Yes, they're not recognizable, although all of the kind of quotes are direct quotes from them. In some ways, I'm extremely surprised. But the truth is, I had no problem finding families. No one said no to me. So Mm. the Jewish family... Why do you think? I think people are very... I think some of the reasons, like there was a family of a a traumatic suicide and a trauma in a family, they wanted their story to help other people understand themselves. So I think there's quite a lot of motivation of, I've suffered, but I would want to alchemize my suffering into the benefit of others. I think there's a, a lot that's altruistic. I think there's something about wanting to understand yourself collectively, which isn't offered to people. You know, it's quite rare to go into a whole family, multi-generation family mm-hmm. therapy. And I think their over, their curiosity overrode their fear. And some of them I'd never met, but some of them I'd worked with one member of the family. And so one of them knew me already. And so that, you know, if you if you have a member of your family that trusts me already, that is a good introduction but the the Jewish family for instance I put a notice up on a on a Jewish um, bereavement charities notice board and I got 
a reply within 24 hours. And I work with this incredible burger family, five generations. So the the burger family resonated with me quite a bit because my mother, like Caddy, who was the matriarch. So for purposes of our audience, the Burgers were an ultra-Orthodox family. Caddy, the matriarch, had survived Auschwitz. And there were five generations. The fifth generation was a baby, but you spoke to all four of the generations. And so Caddy, like my mother, was an Auschwitz survivor. Like my mother was Hungarian. Gosh. And like my mother had this seeming lack of bitterness. I mean, my son wrote his essay about, his college essay about my mother being the kindest person he ever met. So how could that be? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly catty, wasn't it? They couldn't believe that she was so loving. So what do you think when you talk to that family? Because there you have a person experiencing the worst humanity has to offer. And yet there was a seeming healthiness about that family. How much of that did you come to think was about the role Caddy played and how would you describe it? And how much was about this tight community and spirituality? I mean, I think it's all of it. So I think, so Catty, she had she had a secure, loving family in Hungary. So she had secure attachment. And so that is a very, very good beginning. She felt loved and that she held that within her and still does, you know, decades after her, her parents were murdered. And she was a sparky 93-year-old. You know, she was born a sparky, bright 93-year-old. She was so vibrant. And I imagine she was a sparky 15-year-old. And so that is also iterative. So that if you kind of are a kind of energetic and vibrant, people respond to you in a particular way. And she was given a potato peeling. And these odd scraps of luck probably saved her life. And then having just survived Auschwitz and as, you know, she was starving, she nearly died and then she was saved by the Americans. She went to live with her uncle in Manchester and she met Isaac. And she met Isaac about, I think, about a year after she came to the UK. And he was a survivor as well. And he loved her. And I think the thing that tipped her with with those good basics, given the the hor- you know the horror that she faced, was that she made meaning of her experience. She said to her children and to Isaac, she, you know Isaac she loved completely, and she said to her children, "I survived Auschwitz to love Isaac and to have you children." And mm-hmm. I think they were the center of her world. I think, and I'd, I'd love to know if this is true of you. The children, so I expected to see transgenerational trauma. I expect, you know, there's a lot of research about transgenerational trauma in Holocaust survivor families. So I expected to see, you know, a lot of anger and possibly bipolar or schizophrenia, all of those things that have have often occurred. But what I actually saw was this kind of deification of Catty, which in some ways they... They didn't allow themselves to have their difficult experiences because they always compared them mm-hmm. to her. And also she held immense power. So she didn't like them fighting. And there was one, this very small moment when her daughter was saying she didn't get on with her sister. And Cassie said, I don't like that. And she turned her head away and they all froze. And then they kind of did everything they could to reassure her. So they were shaped, although not in a traumatized way, they were entirely shaped by her experience as a Holocaust survivor. And I wonder if that's the same with you. Yeah, so I would say a couple of things uh, to that, some of which I'm unceasingly curious about in other families. So my parents 
both parents were Holocaust survivors. And I compared this to Caddy. My parents considered themselves survivors, not victims. And they too... Which she did, didn't she? She didn't see herself as a victim, did she? No, I I wouldn't say at all. And I would say that they were determined to provide reason for having survived. In other words, create and populate the world with good, hardworking, productive people. Yeah. But the change happens, or it's happened in our family, when both parents are deceased. That's interesting. And so that, you know, that's a longer conversation (laughs) that we could have another time. But what I thought about with Caddy and with patients, which we'll, and we'll talk about her, is this idea that where you have a matriarch or a patriarch that are defining and or inspiring, what happens in their absence? How much of it is transferable in a good way and how much of it unravels. I mean, I sometimes joke that if I had written a book 10 years ago, I would have titled it The Happiest Holocaust Family Ever. And that's, I would write a different book now. Mm. So interesting. But it also made me think about this. You talk about the unwillingness to talk about some of these things. Holocaust survivors are notorious. World War One and World War II soldiers are notorious for keeping the ugliness of their experience out of conversation. So what is it that might motivate someone who wanted to learn more about their parents or their family? How is it that you encourage that person to make themselves available. I mean, think about this armor has been put in place and, you know, they probably think it's working, even if they're like drinking their way out of it or drugging their way out of it or removing themselves. So what is it that a child or a sibling can do to sort of open the door to that possibility? I believe that the armor are defenses and it is not my job as a therapist to kind of yank off the armor, you know, because they're there for very good protective reasons. With the Berger family, it was her granddaughter. She wanted to work out what kind of family they were and she wanted to work out who she was and her own identity separate from her grandmother's identity. And one of the things her mother said was, it's almost like you've been a Holocaust survivor. You take on Catty's story so much. And she wanted to unravel that for herself. And I think Catty, Catty didn't come along because she wanted to speak to a therapist. She came along because she wanted to do what her granddaughter asked her to do. So she wasn't, I mean, she was happy to tell me her story, but she wasn't curious to do any therapy work, if you see what I mean. But her granddaughter and her mother were very engaged with it. They really wanted to understand themselves better and they wanted to change some of the way of the dynamics they had in the family, which were, you know, the, the, the daughter had great kind of control issues and very high anxiety. And she really wanted to let go of some of that. And I think that was a kind of watered-down transmission of trauma. Mm-hmm. And l- let's take a step back for a second, because it shows up in all eight families in one way or another. How does trauma get transferred? What, do- what does that even mean? So a lot of us will have very difficult, frightening events, and they may even be traumatic events. But most of us, like 78, 85% of us even, will it will naturally resolve that traumatic event. 15%, 12 to 15% have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's where the amygdala, which is the very kind of primitive early part of the brain, which is evolutionarily there as a threat detector, 
and you, I mean, you'll have heard this a lot of times that it puts your brain into fight, flight, or freeze, so mm-hmm. that you can either slay the enemy, run from the enemy, or or freeze so that you're not spotted by the enemy. And trauma lives in that part of the brain. It has no sense of time, and it gets locked in the brain, and it gets triggered. The memory of it is held in time, as it were. So that's why, you know, the Holocaust. We didn't get over it. It's still present in many people's lives as if it was yesterday. And it gets triggered by sight, sound, touch and smell, the senses, because they bypass your thinking, your cortex and go straight to the Mm. kind of code red alert. And the work I do with families is to take the distress out of the memory and then you can cognate and you can then store the memory as a non-traumatized memory. Literally. Literally. Literally restore it. Restore it. Yeah, yeah. But with both meanings of the word. Yes. You change it. So you change the belief about it. But what, just so that's the backdrop. And to answer your question, how trauma gets passed down, it gets passed down two ways. It gets passed down behaviorally. So if you, if you have, been in a war like the Ukrainians now, loud noises, certain smells would bring up the the traumatic memory. And 10 years later, if they have any kind of sense or smell that reminds them of that, that memory will emerge in a nanosecond. So there's that way. And people, you know, I think people have it around food. They have it around lots of different cues. And then the other way it's passed down is epigenetically. So it gets passed down through the womb so that, say, uh, a woman who has a heightened cortisol level during her pregnancy through traumatic event, her child can have, not always, nothing is inevitable, mm-hmm. a heightened cortisol level. And so may, you know, when they become adults, think, well, why am I always so frightened? Why do I always feel like something terrible is going to happen? This happened to my mom 30 years ago, and yet... I behave as if it happened to me. And that's the epigenetics being passed down. I think what the research shows, it's Rachel Yehuda does a lot of the research in Israel. She's done the kind of most convincing research and it's three generations it can get passed down. Hmm. Well, the other the other piece that I thought about, and I and I want to talk in a minute about the Wynn family, but you know, I'm fascinated by how often even people I consider evolved and self-aware have trigger points with their families. You know, they become their eight-year-old selves. And you use a term that I just loved, which is emotions are transmitters of information. Elaborate for us how any of us can pay attention to what that might mean. So emotions are, so an emotion can come from a thought and give us a feeling, or it can come from a feeling and give us thought. And so I'm looking at you and say you start frowning at me, I may get a sort of stab of, ooh, what's going on? And so if I don't block it, I let it go up into my head and I'll go, oh, Roxanne's given frowning at me. And then I might say to you, I'll listen to it, and I might say to you, "Is this? Are you okay? Is there something happening? I noticed that you frowned." But if I block, if I have that stab in my stomach, and I deflect it by just getting busy and speaking faster, pretending it didn't happen, it stays in my tummy because it hasn't transmitted the information. Then it can be compounded. Mm-hmm. You know, what you just said reminded me of. Something that you talked about in the book that when we feel unsafe, that our emotional bandwidth is limited and therefore our ability to connect is compromised. So the example that you just gave me, but you know, which is a little thing like a frown that absorbs all this other stuff in your brain, goes back to some other time, somebody frowned, some past hurt, past something. How do you pay attention to that in the minute and not find yourself? I mean, there's the the macro of 
your ability to not connect over a lifetime. And then there's ability to derail a, a conversation or a relationship in the short term. How do you make yourself alert to that? I mean, I think with all of these things, awareness is the first step. So kind of having a third eye that is gently, I mean, not obsessively observing. And, you know, our whole emotional and physiology is wired to look for threat. That is what we look for cues all of the Mm. time. And, you know, people argue it's between 80 and 90% of communication is nonverbal. So it's through our senses. So we pick things up. So, you know, if I can see that you're looking calm and I'm sort of calm with you, then that frees me to kind of be curious. And, you know, I think we need love, work and play. And so in conversation, you need to be able to play and go different places. If you're scared, your creativity, your capacity to kind of go outside your comfort zone gets completely shut down because you're just there link thinking, is she going to say something to upset me? What am I going to do? What am I going to say back? How am I going to get out of here? Mm-hmm. So that's why families matter so much. Like sitting around that kitchen table, if people are listening, you know, sitting around your kitchen table and in the the high days and, the, and in the bad days, is there enough safety and security that you can manage all of the difficulties. And, you know, in families, one of the kind of lines that run through every single family, whether you're a blended family, whatever kind of family you are, is change. Families are always dealing with change. A grandmother dies, a partner gets separated, someone gets born, someone loses a job, someone has goes and lives abroad. I mean, it is but it, how, as a family, you cooperate and collectively manage that level of change and difficulty, you know, has a huge impact on your capacity to kind of navigate the difficulties of life. Because if you hold your family securely in you, you are really blessed. It gives you enormous capacity to deal with difficulty. You know, one of the families, I forget their last name, it was the Keith who lost a baby. Brown, yeah. Oh, Browns, the Browns. Yeah. And there were two things interesting there that I'd love you to talk about. One is it was a stepchild, a teenager. His name began with an L, Linford. But What was interesting to me in that family, so Keith and his wife, Angela, lost a child at three. And so just as you're talking about changes in the family, his relationship with his siblings unraveled during that time and hers. Yeah. Both. Both. And both patients, his mother... And his stepson, Linford, pulled the thread that allowed everybody to begin to have a conversation. Describe what you think was critical to that process beginning. I think often a out-of-the-blue, out-of-time tragedy, like a three-year-old dying, is what ruptures even a pretty good family and all the pre-existing fault lines get totally kind of blown apart because it is so utterly devastating and unbearable in a way that a child should die. So it is, people don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to speak to each other. They don't know how to bear the unbearable feelings. So that's the the kind of hole and the crater and the shards of glass that they were all dealing with. It was incredibly painful and difficult for everyone, most intensely, of course, for the parents. But the two things that patients and Linford were enabled to do is that patients held a great deal of power because she was so respected and loved by all her children. And so although she had caused some of the problems by having a favorite son, her son, Keith, she could 
still make commands of her 50 and 60 year old kids. I mean, these weren't young, young children and tell them to do stuff and they listen to her. And Linford had the emotional intelligence to kind of come up with ideas. So she became a, she had been a Catholic patient and Christmas, they used to, she used to be Mrs. Christmas and that kind of that, so strange to me, but that one feast every year kind of was the pivotal point that kept the family together. They would all show up. When she became a Jehovah's Witness, she stopped doing Christmas because they don't have Christmas and everyone became more fragmented and then the little girl died. And Linford started kind of saying the things that no one had said, like, well, why don't we celebrate another time of year? Why don't we call it the brown Christmas? <laughs> why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And also he would sort of tease people. He'd tease patients. So he dared, I guess. Other people got the thing that in yeah. families, and I think maybe being a stepson helped. I mean, she really loved him like he was her own. But I think what happens in families, they get locked and stuck in their conviction that they're right and that you're wrong. And that kind of polarization is very hard to overcome. And, and, and Julia, what happens when a person that might be a patient of yours as an individual wants to reach out to his family and understand more nobody's willing to do that or nobody's alive, how does that individual then begin to, on their own, reconstruct the armor that was passed down to them? That's such a good question. I mean, I think some of it can be other people still alive or the children of people still alive that you can go and have conversations with. And I often think walking and talking is a really good way of doing it so that people are much mm -hmm. less kind of reserved and you can have time for kind of silence and sort of curiosity. But some things you may never find out. You know, if you find out after your father's died that your biological, he wasn't your biological dad and everyone's died, you may not find out who your biological dad is. And that is, a, you have to grieve it. You can't go on fighting something that can you can never find an answer to. So I think it's recognizing the leads and connections and stories of people that you do know that you can gather and maybe make a book together or, you know, have a, a, a box that you put mementos in that begin to tell a different story so you have a fuller picture. But the pieces of the puzzle that are missing that you're never going to find it's really unhelpful to drive yourself mad thinking that at some point you're going to get there. And I think you need to grieve and allow that you're never going to find that out and come to terms with it. It's another kind of loss. And Julia, is that process of grieving for something you can't even figure out perform the same function of restoring that quality from a place that could easily get triggered to a place that's more rational? I think so, because you've kind of, you've examined it, you've processed it, you know what you feel around it, and then you've kind of filed it away and job done. It's when it's kind of in the folder that needs to work that you keep getting disturbed by it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I thought about is we're, we're going to talk about the 12 touchstones that you have, because I think they're so helpful. But one of the touchstones that you talk about is boundaries and about full and meaningful conversations. You and I talked a little bit before we started recording. We both got married at 20. We're 10 years apart. You're married 43 years. I'm married 53 years. Go you, Roxanne. And <laughs> or Kev. Okay. Yeah. But part of what I think you learn over those years is when to talk about difficult things and what things to not bother with. Yes. So, right? So, when you think about how we should learn what are right boundaries and what are not right boundaries, how should we think about that? Well, I. 
I really don't believe in kind of promiscuous honesty that I have to unload the kind of dustbin of my... Oh, I love that term. <laughs> promiscuous honesty. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, I see a man with a good ass and I turn to my husband and say, mm, he looks sexy. good ass. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that I'm not going to do. So what's the point? You know, or there are many yeah. small things or things that he does that annoy me that it's just not worth it. And I do think small kindnesses, small little moments of kindness are what enables long marriages to survive. And so I think the reverse is true. So if you're thinking about what do you need to have the difficult conversation about and what you don't, I think you have to think, how much do I care about this? How much is this bothering me? If out of 10, it's a nine and an eight or a seven, then you need to have the conversation because that will really interfere with your relationship. If it's right down on the scale, just, you know, let it pass, let it go you know, pick your fights, as they say. The other piece that I think is so motivating as I read this is, if you're lucky, you have a number of people in your life where you feel seen, heard, loved, even though they know that you're, like, stingy or can be mean or 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 something. They love you and your conversations with them are on a whole different level. Yeah. Right? There's a freedom, there's an understanding and you know, if we have two or three of those, we're we're lucky. We're blessed. And they love you with your fault lines and frailties and incredible annoyances and they can laugh at you or be driven mad by you and they still love you. And what I learned reading the book is you use the term, the luxury of feeling the pain, because that seems to me to be the gateway to the other side where you're, you've made yourself vulnerable at the risk of becoming unloved. But in fact, the luxury of the pain is to get you to that place. Help us understand how people can begin to think about that. I mean, I think it's paradoxical. Is the aspect of yourself or the unbearable feelings that you have, that when you fight them or try and block them, they grow bigger in you. And paradoxically, when you dare to acknowledge them and express them and name them, you know, like shame, for instance, grows like topsy in silence. But when mm. I can say I feel this awful kind of tingling thing of shame and I can say why, and I say it to someone, one of the few people I trust and love, and they are compassionate towards me, it changes. But shame, mm. often you want to kind of just bury it because your instinct is it will put other people off me too. They will be ashamed of me and it's a high risk move it's a so it has to be with people that you trust and one of the things i worry about with social media is that people are not protecting themselves enough they're not filtering their most mm -hmm. vulnerable aspects to show to the people who are in the privacy who really love them and know them and they're kind of putting them out in the world and it, and and it, i think it really harms them and Julia, doesn't the social media do yet another thing? Doesn't it also expand what you might be ashamed of? Because a lot of what people are putting out is, is a airbrushed version of their life. You know, some people are sharing too much. What do you call it? Promiscuous honesty. Yeah. Where you're like, you know, too much information. TMI, yeah. Yeah. We could talk about spare and... <laughs> <laughs> the books bear about that. But in other cases, they're painting a picture which I worry about makes the box that you might put things that you're ashamed of bigger and bigger because you're not doing that with your kids. Your husband isn't kissing you 87 times a day. You're not you're not doing the brilliant, enlightening activities at dinner with your kids. In fact, your kids are like screaming and don't even want to sit down at, at the table. Do you think that's another 
damaging part of social media? I, I do. I, I, I think we do. You know, you talked about boundaries. We need boundaries. Boundaries are emotional and physical. And, you know, as the proverb says, good fences make good neighbors. And emotions are contagious. So if we are kind of promiscuously expressing and venting and showing our kind of underbelly to the world, it is transmitted to the world and they will pick it up and feel it for one thing. So it kind of is getting out there. But it isn't received with the empathy and compassion that is then stabilizing and containing for you that's distressed. Mm -hmm. It just amps up your anxiety or your your shame because you can't, it's not relational. It's not in relationship with someone else. It's just bi-directional. It's transmitted. So I think that that, so that's a really interesting point, Julia, that you're making, that when we talk about the family unit, there's a motivation that our discretion or our openness is part of a relationship. When you're on social media, the relationship is artificial. There's not really a relationship. It's performative. It's performative. And that feels to me dangerous. I mean, I'm not against social media, by the way, because I use social media. I have a very kind of I love it. I follow you. I do. Nice. So I love my Instagram account. And I think social media has a huge part to play in putting communities together, sharing information, kind of if you feel like you're an outlier, finding your tribe. I think there's a lot that's really, really good about it. So I I by no means kind of casting it as a, a terrible thing. But I think it has an underbelly that I wish, particularly, obviously, young people who are most vulnerable and their brains are still growing and more plastic than our tired old brains, that they create boundaries for themselves that keep them safe. Well, because what it makes me think about is this. On your posts, you're often interviewing someone and how they dealt with grief for a difficult time. So there's something that makes that normative, yeah, right, which helps us by definition not feel ashamed or uncomfortable about things. But when I've watched what those who have come on your Instagram, they're doing it in a way that doesn't feel overexposed. And I'm trying to think about what is it that makes it feel that way when I'm listening to it. It doesn't feel... It feels like it has a kind of integrity. I'm really pleased to hear that. I think it might be because of our relationship, my relationship with them, that there's a mm-hmm. there's a trust, maybe, and I want to keep them safe. And also, I don't try, I'm not digging to get a big emotional response. I'm not looking for drama. Yeah. I'm looking for connection. So I hope I create right. connection. Connection with an intention to understand. And I think that's very different how some conversations go. So that to me, Julia, is the big takeaway that I had from the book. And I I would hope readers would is it sort of put a construct around how we can connect with people with an honesty in which we feel safe. And if we do that, you know, there were a couple of times during the book where I palpably felt the kind of freedom that family members experienced by opening up and being willing to have those conversations. I mean, you really... For each of these eight families, I thought, wow, I am so happy for you that you were able to do this. You know, Archie, who's dying. He's still alive. Oh, my goodness. He's still alive. And the mom from the Rossi family who, you know, she had these three daughters who told her how furious they were with her, which is a very hard message to hear. I got an email from her this morning saying they'd just been on holiday together. They had a lovely time. 
the therapy had helped them all so much. And that, you know, that that is just so heartwarming. You know, and we had like six sessions. This was not, it's like six hours changed their lives. It's pretty amazing. The, the last thing I want to bring up, you talk about the individual narrative versus the collective narrative. And there was a short story I read years ago. I wish I could find it. And it was two sisters. And one sister had her hair braided every morning by her mother. And her sister would be sort of on the staircase watching. And the sister on the staircase talks about being envious of the connection and intimacy between her mother and her sister. And then the sister whose hair is being braided says that she is jealous of the freedom and independence of her sister on the staircase and she feels confined and controlled by her mother braiding and tugged yeah. her hair. <laughs> yeah. See that. So explain to us what the what the impact is of the individual versus the collective narrative. Well, the underpinning key element of every family is abundance of love. And that that love is love in action love in going forward, love in affection, love in stepping back, love in letting go. And with siblings in families, if there's a sense of precarity, that there isn't abundance, then there's a competition. Because if there's only this little bit, each one, their lens of looking at the other will be, she's getting something I want and she's getting what I want. Like a zero-sum game. Exactly. So, because there isn't enough. So there's obviously some sense of deficit that they both have and they play it out in the way that they observe each other. Whereas if they had felt like there was enough, they maybe like want the mum's attention, but it isn't so, there's a sense of, well, maybe I can ask mum to do my hair tomorrow. I can get my Mm -hmm. needs met. I I can ask for my needs. And they're likely to happen because mum's predictable, she's loving, she's warm. She wants to meet in my needs. She won't always, you know, and I can get cross with her and she'll get cross with me. But that I'm able to ask for my needs. There's no shame because it feels like there's quite a lot of shame and control. In It's a wonderful um, little, whatever that is called. Story. Story. <laughs> Vignette. <laughs> that was the word. Vignette. Vignette. Yeah. So at the end of your book, you have two things that I think are worth mentioning. One are called the 12 touchstones for the well-being of a family, which are very straightforward, but very useful to see accumulated. They include the boundaries, which I mentioned, effective open communication, being self-compassionate, fight productively allow difference, set boundaries. So we're all, I mean, I looked at it and I thought, okay, where do I fall down? What do you think is the most common area where most of us fall down? Or where do you fall down? I probably fall down in all of them. Um, (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, I'm pretty good at boundaries. I'm very bad at fighting productively. I'm scared of fighting. I think it's the open, trusting communication is the one. People don't really, they don't know how to fight without annihilating the other. They find it hard to kind of say what they need. They find it hard to have difficult conversations. They find it hard to celebrate somebody. You know, I think there's a lot in communication. I think if if the communication, the intention is for the good of the other and you grapple your way through it. I think it's a very forgiving for a family. That allows a lot to happen in a family that's very stabilizing. Yeah. And I do think, you know, one of the one of the questions I've learned 
to ask myself is, what's my intention in saying that? Yes, that's a good question. Because sometimes it's it's not so nice. No. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's pretty damn bad. Do you know, the, at the weekend, I mean, this may be too much information, but at the weekend, I was looking after two of my little grandchildren. My daughter went off for the weekend with her husband. And I was so aware of my bad parenting habits as a grandparent. Like they just, really? they, yeah, they just literally, like I thought I knew more, you know, I've been the therapist all this time. I know what I'm doing. And there I am. My impatience is just boom. Yeah. Eat your breakfast. <laughs> Eat your breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> like you find yourself saying things that you can barely believe came out of your mouth. So, yeah, terrible, terrible. The other thing that you have in the book that I have encouraged friends to do is most people are not capable of writing an autobiography for their children or grandchildren, but there's lots of these parenting or these like prompting books that do things like, what'd you see when you looked out your window? Where'd you go to school in second grade? What'd you often have for breakfast? As a way to kind of Tell a story. fill out a story. And I love that in the appendix, which I think would be a great guide for somebody who wants to begin to write anything, you call it the do you know scale. And the questions are, do you know how your parents met? Do you know where your mother grew up? Do you know where your father grew up? I'm amazed at the number of people that can't answer these basic questions about their parents or grandparents. I can't answer most of them. You can't? No. Do you want to? Well, it's too late now. They both died. But I literally know very little. My parents didn't talk about their past at all. Yeah. And both your parents lost parents young, right? Very young. Yeah. My mom was an orphan by the time she was 25. Her si both her siblings and both her parents had died suddenly and traumatically by the time she was 25. And my dad, his father and his brother. You know, I often say if I had a wish, I would want to spend one more day with my father and one more day with my oh. mother. And I was fortunate to have them well into adulthood. Yeah. You know, my mom died when I was in my late 60s. But even now with her gone, just five years, Aww. I like want her back for a day for yeah. a conversation. Do you feel that way? Um, not really. Well, I no? well, kind of. I, there are definitely conversations I'd like to have. But what would be the first question you'd ask your mom? Um... I'd ask her when she was happiest. Nice. You know, I would have asked her when she was I actually did happiest. that to my mum. I record, so people listening, I had lots of conversations with my mum that I recorded on my phone, which I never asked her permission for, which I'm sure is unethical, but. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> and so I've got a lot of conversations. I asked her those questions. I asked her about, I asked her about her, her bringing us up about parenting us and when was she happiest and those kinds of questions, which I'm really glad I did. How willing was she to talk then? What, what, I mean, I really loved my mum, so this isn't critical at all, but what she would do is she would completely not answer the question, just tell me what she wanted to tell me. She was like a sort of arch mm -hmm. politician. So if I yeah. asked her about my dad, she never, she never really answered. Yeah. You know, I wonder about what our kid, I only have one child, you have four. And one of the things I thought about in listening to your podcast, which is called Therapy Works, which I would highly recommend. Well, thank you. I, I learned something from every episode oh, wow. um, that you've done, but I was fascinated to realize. So with the, for people listening, Julia interviews someone they talk about a process that they went through, how therapy helped them. But at the end, Julia brings on two of her kids, both girls, who are both psychotherapists. And I thought, okay, Julia Samuel, 
What was it that motivated uh, both of your daughters to become psychotherapists? Well, they have been asked this since coming on the podcast. And can I, I tell you, should I tell you their answer? So that, I, I want to hear I want to hear each of their answers because they're quite different. And then I want to hear yours. So the bit that's similar about their answer is that both of them delayed becoming a therapist because I was a therapist, because they wanted mm-hmm. to, to do something different. They feel that they knew that there was such a thing as therapy because I was a therapist. So they kind of cottoned onto it. But Emily is a child psychotherapist and Sophie is an adult. And they really believe that it weren't influenced by me because I never talk about work. I almost never talk about work. Mm. Um, and that they've wanted to do it for their own reasons in the same way that I did. I I, th- I completely believe them. I think that's true. And I think there is an influence of a model of a parent that you're maybe not even conscious of. You know, they had a mother who was a therapist mm-hmm. their entire life. And it's what they see. It's what they saw. Yeah. You know, like often kids of doctors are doctors. And I think they're much better therapists than me. Why do you think that? Well, they're so good on the pod. When I ask them questions, they, they're they good. They are so good. I am always yeah. so kind of impressed by their insight and what they think. They think of things I've never thought of. It's like, oh my God, you're so good. Yeah. And they don't agree yeah. with me and they challenge me. And I, I love that. It's a really lovely thing. I feel very lucky that we can do it. It's, we didn't know if it would work, but I think we've it all does. enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been really it interesting. Yeah. You know, the other thing that, we, you know, I wish we could go on a little longer. We've already gone over, but one of the things that reading the book made me think about and listening to a few of the podcasts is I was thinking about the degree to which loneliness and anxiety is on the rise or yeah. the impact of the pandemic on people feeling isolated. And what I hope a reader comes away from the book feeling is to appreciate that the potential pain to themselves, if they're willing to sort of push through it, has just a fertile, beautiful landscape or can on the other side. What a beautiful way to end the podcast, Roxanne. That's so (laughs) lovely. Thank you. And thank you for reading the book with such kind of um, openness and depth. Really feels, it was such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Well, Julia, thank you for taking the time. Maybe we'll get to see each other in person again on one side of the Atlantic or another, but keep doing those podcasts, keep doing those Instagram posts. They're so, like you did one yesterday that was Blue Monday. Yeah, yeah. Everybody should go listen to it. (laughs) Good. It was great. (laughs) Good, good. Thank you. All right. Be well, Julia. And you. Take care. Bye. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. Can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. 
You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.